We're turning this morning to one of the most shocking uh, books contained within uh, the entire Bible, the book of Hosea. It's the book where God tells one of his prophets to go and marry a prostitute. Hosea is to take uh, as a wife an immoral, unfaithful, adulterous woman who will betray him and disappoint him and keep on going after other lovers again and again. Her name is Gomer, and uh, this situation serves as a very graphic illustration of the kind of love the Lord has towards his people. They are unfaithful, unloving, unclean, and unworthy, and yet the Lord is absolutely devoted to them. He just keeps on loving them and forgiving them and restoring them and cleansing them over and over and over again. And the book contains some of the most moving descriptions found anywhere in the Bible of this irrepressible and persistent love that God has even for wayward and disobedient people. And it's a book that points forward to the Messiah, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, for it's in him that this marriage-like relationship between God and sinners uh, comes into its most glorious expression. Uh, So the loving union depicted here in this ancient book is realized ultimately in Christ and the new covenants He came to establish as he shed his blood for sinners on the cross. Jesus is the ultimate lover of souls. And in him, unworthy and undeserving, unlovely human beings like you and me get to be joined to Almighty God forever. And one of the loveliest expressions of this in the book of Hosea is found in the second chapter, and particularly in verses 19 to 20. This is what the Lord says to sin-ridden, guilt-laden people. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that's a relationship you have now permanently entered. And if you're someone who does not yet know the joy of having your sins forgiven through the Lord Jesus, this is what you could come and experience for yourself. This is what you would come to enjoy if you were uh, to respond to the love Jesus Christ holds out to you and consent to be his forever. Uh, So we're going to consider this morning four facets of this spectacular promise that God holds out to sinful people. Note firstly that what what is promised here is an eternal promise betrothal. I will betroth you to me forever. 
says the Lord. And now the people of God in Hosea's day had proven to be extremely unfaithful to the Lord. They had forsaken him and gone after other gods. Uh, They had uh, shown total disregard for God's commandments. They'd shown utter contempt for his precepts. precepts. They had heaped up sin upon sin upon sin. Uh, This is how they're described in chapter 4 of the book. There is no faithfulness or loving kindness and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murdering, stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodsheds. And later verses speak of them uh, rejecting knowledge, forgetting God's law, increasing in sin and whoring after idols. So these are wicked, immoral, degenerate people. These are people who thoroughly deserve God's righteous wrath to rain down upon them. And in the first part of chapter 2, that's what the Lord does indeed uh, warn them about. He says he's going to uh, lay waste their land and punish them for their worship of the false god Baal. But then when you come to verse 14, there's this remarkable change of tone in the chapter. And that's actually a feature that uh, crops up several times in this book of Hosea. God looks upon all the sin of his people and he sees how much they deserve his anger and his judgments. But then it's as though there's something that just holds him back from utterly destroying them. It's his deep and powerful and intense, ardent love for them. And so here, suddenly from verse 14, having exposed their sins, he goes on to speak of drawing these wayward, ungodly, obstinate people back to himself. Uh, He says, verse 14, Behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. And he goes on to speak of giving them a bright future and of transforming a valley of trouble into a door of hope and of restoring a marriage-like relationship between them and himself so that they will call him my husbands. And he goes on to say that he will give them security, protecting them from the natural realm and from human violence and making them lie down in safety. And then come these magnificent words, I will betroth you to me forever. That's quite some promise, isn't it, for God to make to these uh, wretchedly corrupt and sinful people. He's going to bind these people to himself in an unbreakable bond of love. He's going to formally commit to being their husband. He's going to take them on as his bride, he's going to undertake to bring them into marriage with himself, into a, a close and warm and intimate union. And it's a union that will never come to an end. It will be forever. Nothing's ever going to dissolve this union or tear it apart. Nothing's ever going to nullify or destroy the, the covenant, the solemn bonds that God will enter into. This is something that will last, something that will endure for all eternity. 
And what's promised here is fulfilled in what the Bible calls the new covenant that was brought in and sealed by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus came to realize and make permanent this marriage-like union between God and his people, the very thing envisaged here in this book of Old Testament's prophecy. Jesus came as the divine bridegroom to win and to wed his bride. So when you turn to the New Testament, to John 3, verse 29, John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom. And then you turn to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, and Paul speaks of believers being betrothed to one husband, Jesus Christ, as a pure virgin. Ephesians 5, verse 25, calls husbands to love their wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, uh, that she might be uh, presented to him without spots or blemish. And he goes on to say that earthly marriage points to that union between Christ and the church. And then in the very final book of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 7 to 9, we read of a future marriage supper of the Lamb. That is, a wedding celebration feast between uh, the glorified, resurrected Jesus of Nazareth and all who belong to him. Jesus came into this world to make Hosea chapter 2 a reality, a living and eternal one. He came here on a, a mission of love to go to a cross to make this extraordinary marriage feasible and viable because it wasn't by nature, but through his death, he secured the necessary cleansing from all that guilt and shame and defilement of God's people, thus making them fit to be his holy brides forever. And it means that every person who puts their faith in the risen Christ, everyone who relies on him for the cleansing they know they need from sin, they become joined to God everlastingly we can enter into a never-ending union with none other than the almighty creator of heaven and earth. That's the offer that Holy Scripture holds out to this world that's so devoid of hope that there is a living God, a loving God, an unimaginably great and awesome God who is willing for you to enter into permanent, joyful, blissful union with himself, even though it's the very last thing in all the universe that you deserve. Now, in the Old Testament, it's the nation of Israel that's viewed as God's bride. But then with the coming of the new covenant, the membership of God's people expands to include people from all nations who believe in God's Son, And that's why the last verse of Hosea 2 is quoted in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9.25, and it's applied to non-Jews, to Gentiles. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And it's also alluded to in 1 Peter 2 verse 10, where Peter writes, Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy... And now you have received mercy. So the promise here is not just for those who are ethnically Jewish. Anyone anywhere who lays hold of Israel's Messiah will enjoy 
all the benefits of this everlasting divine betrothal. In Jesus Christ, there's a marriage between God and sinners that will last for all eternity. And when you're in that marriage, there is absolutely nothing whatever that can sever the bonds between you and the Lord. God would have to break his marriage vows and prove an unfaithful husband for that to happen, and that's inconceivable and impossible. He is going to keep hold of you, come what may. Our sin cannot make him divorce us. He knew all about it anyway, even before he first called us to himself. And nor can any circumstances we might ever face cut short that union that now exists between us and our heavenly lover. We're bound to him forever. If our faith is in Christ, if we belong to the Lord Jesus, then there's absolutely no risk at all that in the future we might find ourselves cut off from him and irretrievably lost. God will stick by us no matter what, because that's what he's promised. I will betroth you to me forever. And hence we read of Christ's people in the New Testament that they shall never perish. And Jesus says, no one can pluck them out of my hand. He says, I will lose nothing of all that the Father has given me. We are unalterably safe in Jesus Christ. And if that's something you do not yet know for yourself, wouldn't you like to know such a glorious and reassuring reality to know that you are held and embraced and enclasped forever by your Creator and that there is absolutely nothing that will ever have the power to prize you from His grip, not even your own sins and failings and foolishness. This is what you can come to know for yourself when you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you entrust your guilty soul into his purifying, saving hands, you become his and his forever. Then secondly, it's a righteous betrothal. Verse 19 continues, yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. And now there's some disagreement as to whether the qualities listed here are what God displays himself or what he produces within his people. Uh, But it seems more natural to read them as what the Lord himself brings to the marriage, the characteristics he will exercise in this committed covenant union. These are attributes frequently ascribed to the Lord through the pages of Holy Scripture. So in his dealings with his sinful people, the Lord is going to act in complete righteousness and justice. Those two are often paired together in the Old Testament to describe God's straight, fair, equitable dealings with people. He's a God of absolute integrity and moral rectitude, and uncompromising uprightness. There's no corruption or partiality or crookedness with him, as there might be with a human judge. He can't be bribed. He's never prejudiced. He's always in full possession of the facts. He never proves inconsistent. And these two qualities characterize all of God's dealings with his sinful people, his ongoing treatment of them year after year. And the way he first brings sinners into union with himself is characterized by this total righteousness and justice. He, 
He doesn't in any sense bend or twist his own law, his own standards to accomplish this union. He doesn't simply turn a blind eye to the sin that's festering in his people. His righteousness is displayed, his justice is upheld as he sends his own son to a cross there to bear himself the full penalty due to sinful men and women, boys and girls. That's what was happening at the cross where Jesus suffered so grievously and horrifically. Romans 3 verse 26 tells us it was to demonstrate something about God. Jesus died to demonstrate God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Without the cross, it would be a monstrous moral outrage for God to forgive you and me. He would be saying, in effect, sin doesn't matter. It doesn't register as significance. It's nothing to me. Thereby showing him not to be a righteous God. Israel's sin had to be properly dealt with. The sin of anyone who's to enter into this divine marriage has to be duly judged and condemned. That's the way of righteousness, but that's where the cross of Christ comes in. It's why Jesus' sacrifice was so necessary. It's why you have no way into God's presence, no way into God's glory without that blood sacrifice. There at the cross, sin is punished in full unsparingly, comprehensively. But instead of us having to face it, it's borne in full by one man standing in for and representing a whole vast group of people. Jesus is appointed as the head of all God's people. He takes on responsibility for all of our transgressions and he receives on himself, on that cross, the law's full heavy penalty. God's anger consumes him. The wrath that you read about so much in the Old Testament and uh, it's very prominent here in the book of Hosea. God's indignation at the wickedness and sin of his people. Well, that anger is poured forth onto the earth. But instead of it drenching the guilty ones, it comes down upon the lovely, beautiful, innocent substitute who willingly stands in their place and receives it, thereby maintaining and satisfying God's absolute justice. The sin is dealt with properly. The penalty is meted out. But Jesus Christ takes it for us himself. And thereby God demonstrates his righteousness. He justifies sinners. That is, he declares us, if we believe in the Lord Jesus, he declares us to be clean and right and pure and blameless in his eyes. But he remains just. His righteousness hasn't been compromised in even the slightest degree because Christ has borne our guilt. And having reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, having put us right through the shedding of Christ's blood, God now continues to act towards us if we're his people in this perfect, unwavering righteousness. He never treats us unfairly, never accuses us falsely, never deals with us inappropriately because he's annoyed or exasperated. And it means that even in suffering and persecution, believers can entrust themselves to him who judges justly, as Jesus is said to do in 1 Peter 2 and verse 
23. And we can rest assured that whatever we may be undergoing in the present, God says he's going to repay those who afflict us and grant relief to those who are afflicted in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. It's such a comfort to know, is it not, uh, that we're in a universe that's not out of control. It's being regulated and governed by spotless, immaculate righteousness, even if it doesn't always seem like it can be. And what a comfort to know if you're staking all your hope and confidence for acceptance with God in Jesus Christ that you're in the hands of someone who'll always do you right and never let you down. Don't you want to know a God like this if you don't yet? In a world where there's so much injustice and where people can so often mistreat you and con you and betray you and use you badly, in Christ we come to know a God who's different from what humans are like by nature, a God whose work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, good and upright is he. Thirdly, note that this is a gracious betrothal. Verse 19 continues... I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. Here's another beautiful couplet uh, describing the unfailing character of the Lord. Uh, Loving kindness, chesed in the Hebrew, uh, speaks of a committed, devoted, loyal kind of love. And it can carry the sense of kindness or grace. And the word mercy carries uh, the sense of compassion, of pitying tenderness, such as what a mother feels and shows towards her child. And these are what the uh, loving God of heaven exercises towards fallen and foul and filthy people, morally speaking. Though unlovely, he chooses to love them nevertheless and to keep doing so, enduringly and he has a a soft benevolent merciful heart towards them he's moved to to meet their needs and lift them out of the messes that they so often plunge into and these qualities are what we see displayed uh, in this uh, securing of the marriage bond through his son Jesus Christ not only did God demonstrate his righteousness in the death of Christ but perhaps uh, Uh, More famously, we're told in Romans chapter 5 that God commends or demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when you think about what's happening there at the scene of the cross, the eternal Son of God, clothed in frail humanity, choosing to wear our sins himself, and crying out in dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experiencing agony and woe and misery that we really can't get our finite minds around. When you think about that, what a, a marvelous, abundant, overflowing magnitude of love the creator of the universe must have for the likes of us to send his son there. Who is he there for? For sinners, the ungodly, God's enemies. Romans 5 tells us. He's hanging there for idolaters and liars 
and hypocrites and thieves and adulterers and the sexually immoral and revilers and swindlers and cheats and the proud and the greedy and the self-centered. And what's he doing for them? He's carrying all their sins for them. He's becoming the scapegoat for them. He's going through all the torment that they deserve for daring to rebel against the high God of heaven. He's facing all of that so that they'll never have to face it themselves. And what's the result? If we believe in him, we're justified before God. We're declared to be without faults before him. And we're saved, Romans 5 goes on to tell us, from the coming wrath due to fall at the end of this world. And we're reconciled, we're brought into friendship with God. We're under his favour, we're members of his family, we're children of his and we inherit eternal life. And what's the explanation for all of this? Why would God go to such extraordinary lengths to secure such blessings for the likes of you and me? It's not because we're worthy of such benefits. The answer is simply love. This pure, deep, fervent, boundless, everlasting love that springs forth from the heart of God. Love for the unlovely, love for the likes of you and me. God pitied us, even though we didn't deserve it, one iota, and he chose to show us mercy. And in chapter 11 of Hosea, we find a God speaking these moving words. His people have been bent on turning away from him. They've been continually sinning against him. But this is what he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over O Israel, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. So this deep, tender, affectionate, caring regard God has for his people means he holds back the anger they deserve. And he spares them. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you're one of those people who was called out to him in repentance and sought his cleansing and forgiveness, then you've been saved from your sins. You're going to be spared from all that devastating future judgments, not because of any good you have done, but because Christ loved you and gave himself for you. And that same loving kindness and mercy shown at the cross will continue to govern all God's dealings with you forever and ever. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and then you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As David memorably says in Psalm 23 and how consoling this ought to be to us that the creator of the whole universe has bound himself to us irreversibly in this A deep and profound loving kindness and compassion, that means no matter how far you wander, no matter how far you stray, he will not give up on you. It's absolutely guaranteed that he'll continue to love you and be merciful to you through every twist and turn of your life. Divine love and tenderness will embrace you and envelop you and guard you and lead you and keep on forgiving you through your whole life's journey and then you'll be received into glory forever. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 
that there's nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you want to know a love like that for yourself? You can come to experience it when you come to Jesus Christ. And lastly, as we finish, note fourthly, that this is a faithful betrothal. Verse 20 adds, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. There's another trait that's frequently attributed to God in the pages of the Old Testament. Uh, His is a true and steadfast, dependable character. Uh, He's not an unstable kind of God, but he's one that can be always relied on. He never goes back on what he says. He's uh, not like a husband who breaks his marriage vows and gives up on his wife. No, the Lord can be trusted 100% to undertake what he's committed to do and to hold fast to his bride unfailingly. God showed his faithfulness at the cross where so many ancient pledges to people of old were finally fulfilled. So many prophetic promises came true there as Jesus suffered and died. It Uh, may sometimes be a very long time in coming, uh, but sooner or later, God brings to pass every single tiny detail of whatever it is that he has declared he will do. And so as Jesus suffers there at Calvary, what was God doing? He was crushing our ancient enemy, the serpent, the devil, as he'd promised to do long ago in the Garden of Eden. He was obtaining blessing for all the nations, just like he'd promised to Abraham. He was removing iniquity in a single day, like he'd promised through the prophet Zechariah. He was bringing in everlasting righteousness, like he'd promised through Daniel. Uh, You can find in the Old Testament such a a long list of glorious commitments and guaranteed, and you can tick them off one by one as being secured and accomplished as Jesus Christ dies for us. And in his resurrection, a prophecy of Hosea was fulfilled in In chapter 13, verse 14 of this book, God declares, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O grave, where is your sting? And the Apostle Paul alludes to that verse in 1 Corinthians 15, and he applies it to Christ's resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is what secures our own future resurrection. It frees us from death's dominion and what God has promised he will faithfully fulfill and this faithfulness is going to characterize everlastingly God's dealings with those sinners who come to him and never is he going to fail to do anything he has promised never will he leave us nor forsake us never will he walk out on his commitment to us never will he wash his hands of us and say well I've had enough I'm done with you Never will we cast our faith on him and find that he proves unable to support the weight of it. He's in this for the long haul. He's going to go the distance. He'll stick at this marriage through thick and thin, however unpromising you might be. We may well stumble and falter and stray and be unfaithful, but the Lord on his side of the marriage never will. And how delightfully reassuring that ought to be to us. God isn't going to prove to be like you may have found people on earth to be. Maybe you've been badly let down by parents, a spouse, siblings, friends, children, people in church, 
and it hurts deeply and you find it really hard to trust people because they just keep letting you down. But what does the scripture say here in the book of Hosea? That God is not a man. He's not changeable like you find other humans to be. When he commits to something, it's fixed and settled and certain. And he has chosen to attach himself unbreakably to his chosen bride, to the church, which you are invited to become a part of through faith in Jesus Christ. When you turn from your life of sin and you yield yourself into the loving embrace of Jesus Christ, you become part of these people to whom God betrothed himself faithfully and righteously and lovingly forever. And what does this betrothal actually entail? Uh, What's at the heart of this heavenly marriage between Jesus Christ and his people? The end of verse 20 proclaims, and you shall know the Lord. That's what's at the core of this beautiful covenant relationship. We come to know God in the sense of being personally acquainted with him and experiencing him as a living reality. This is what eternal life consists of, according to Jesus Christ himself in John chapter 17. Now, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And it's in this that true and lasting joy and delight and satisfaction are to be found. Give up seeking those things in the passing, fleeting, crumbling, disappointing, unreliable things you can locate down here on earth, they will fade away. They're not enough. But here is the living God. Here is the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. Here is the one who spoke and galaxies of stars appeared. Here is the one who upholds the universe daily. Here is one greater and more resplendent and more majestic and more uh, sublime in his glory than our little minds can possibly entertain the thought of. And in all the fullness of his love, in all the massiveness of his mercy, in all the vastness of his grace, knowing the very worst about you, sensing the stench of your sin, seeing what you're really like deep down inside, seeing how far short you fall of his lovely, beautiful standards, he nevertheless loves you and he calls you to himself and says, you can be mine, you can know me, You can experience my love shed abroad in your hearts. You can have all your sins washed away. You can be my child forever. You can be united to me through all the endless ages of eternity. You can know me. But it's only through his son, Jesus Christ, that that can become a reality for you. You first need to face up to the painful, uncomfortable truth that you're no better than these people spoken to long ago through the prophet Hosea. You're riddled with sin when measured against God's pure and spotless holiness. We fall a million miles short of the mark. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus had to suffer. That's why Jesus had to die and rise again. And having risen from the tomb... His call to you is to repent, acknowledge that massive sin, turn away from it towards something better, 
Turn towards the forgiving God of heaven. Pin all your hopes not on any good work that you have ever done or any righteousness that you have exhibited. Stake all your hope in the one who on that cross took away the sin of the world. Rest your heart in him. Cry out to him for cleansing and mercy. And what's promised here in Hosea will be your joyful experience. You shall know the Lord in this life and by his grace forever. Amen. Our final hymn is number 654. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. Number 654. Thank you. 